Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we seek that you would reorient our loves and our affections so that, Lord God, we have a craving for the Word of God, a deep hunger and thirst to know you through your revelation and Holy Scripture. Lord, we are so easily distracted by the junk food that the world provides us on a spiritual level. Give us hunger for that which really brings life to us. And now, Lord, anoint the preaching of your word. Lord, reveal to us the critical nature of this teaching and the wonders that it contains. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this Sunday morning, we are completing a summer-long preaching series on the biblical understanding of what it means to be a human being, otherwise known as Christian anthropology. I know uh, I can speak for Chris Bohr. He's relieved that uh, we don't have to do this anymore for a while. We actually did a series on about the same thing back in 2012, and those were different sermons, believe it or not. But we are going to end this ser- series where we ended that series years ago, and that is talking about uh, a, a core issue, a core truth of Christian anthropology, which we will come to in just a moment. Over the course of this series, we've repeatedly emphasized that our conclusions on what it means to be a human being uh, strike at the root of the greatest controversies that are churning in our culture today. And while there are many also-rans that are contending to be the dominant worldview, the two main stories of humanity in our culture tend to be the secularist, naturalistic worldview. Okay, that's one story, the secularist story, the naturalistic story. And on the other hand, the Christian story rooted in Holy Scripture. Now, that secularist worldview, we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, but if, it is an, if it's intellectually honest... If it's, if it's logically consistent, consistent, that story has no choice other than seeing human beings, listen, as mere biomechanical machines of no more intrinsic worth than any other living organism. And that is what ethicist Peter Singer argues when he says, human beings, human babies, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time, they are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, or a dog, or a chimpanzee. Now, and so you have Peter Springer, who is the Ira DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, promoting the ideas such as the right of a mother to kill her child up to at least 28 days following birth. It's the logical consequence of that materialistic, naturalistic, atheistic, secular worldview. And in stark contrast, we have the Christian story of what it means to be a human being. And in in that story, we are told we're created in the image and likeness of God and that you and I have such intrinsic worth and value that it's almost unbelievable. We don't have to earn or merit our value based on our performance or our physical ability or our mental ability. God instead has, listen, 
sovereignly conferred transcendent dignity and value upon humanity by virtue of creating us in his image. There's no higher value than that, than being made in the image and likeness of God. And then taking on human flesh and coming among us in Jesus Christ ups the ante even farther. God not only loves us and created us in his image, he takes on his, he takes on his creature's humanity. And so we don't think killing people just because they are disabled or haven't had the good sense to be born yet is morally justified. However, I don't think any of us... Now, that's, that's sort of the, the, the contrast there, but listen, I want you to hear this. I don't think any of us ever conceive of the amazing, the astonishing goal that God has for you and for I as followers of Jesus Christ. You and I very rarely consider the astonishing goal that he has for his redeemed humanity. This is what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Your eye hasn't seen it. Your ear hasn't heard it. Even your deepest longings have yet to imagine the purposes and plans that God has for you. They're that wonderful. And that's the note I want to end this sermon series on. God's ultimate goal for those who love him is so wonderful, so glorious, that when we actually, if we actually, and we will, begin to articulate it, it almost sounds like heresy. It's just that good. Listen to uh, 2 Peter once again, that passage, one verse from that uh, passage. 2 Peter 1, 4, chapter 1, verse 4. He, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through God's precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. God's purpose for every one of us in this room, listen, is to become a partaker of the divine nature. How do I know that? It says so in the Bible. We just keep coming back to that book. God's goal for those who love him, for those who have been born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, because we're believers, because we're Christians, and we've been at this for 2,000 years, we have a special vocabulary word for this. All right? And that vocabulary word, I like this word a lot, and you've heard me speak of this before, that word is theosis. T-H-E-O-S-I-S. Theosis. Theosis is the process and goal of the believer being taken up, listen, completely into the life of God. The interpenetrating life of God in me and me and him. That's the passage we heard. Jesus prayed to the Father for that to happen to us in John chapter 17. I pray that they all may be one. I would be in them, they would be in me. That, listen, interpenetrating life, me full of God and God in me. It is our total and complete, total and inextricable union with God so that, listen, and here's the crazy talk. Are you ready? You might even want to write this down. So that all that God is by nature, we become by grace. That is, I hope that just thoroughly blows your mind like it does mine. 
that we all become by, nat- by grace what God is in himself by nature. That is the goal of human existence. This is where we end this series. When we talk about God's work of sanctification in our lives, essentially we are referring to God's process of theosis in the life of the disciple. That word theosis is a very old Christian word, and we need to come to terms with it. Now, if you're like me, when I first heard that ter- about this, when I first heard this doctrine from Scripture, the, the heresy siren started, or siren. <laughs> Told somebody last night, I said, I've got a, I've got a rheostat. I've got a potentiometer in my, in, in my head somewhere that I can turn up and down and speak southern real good, and then back where more normal people can understand me. But that little heresy siren started to go off in my head when I first heard this doctrine because, to me, it kind of sounded like all that New Age stuff. You know, pantheism, New Age. But as we will see in a moment, it's exactly what the Bible teaches, and it's not New Age or pantheistic at all. But to help us understand what this means, I want to use an analogy that many great theologians have used in the past, and I want to explain this to you, okay? So think about theosis like this. And some of you have heard me share this, this analogy before. Uh, they use the, the term a sword, but I'm going to just use a poker because you know, most of us, even if it's just for decoration, even if your house doesn't have a fireplace, you might have a fireplace poker laying around somewhere. But you take that fireplace poker and you put, you put that fireplace poker into the hot fire. What begins to happen to that piece of iron? Well, after a while, it starts to glow yellow and then red. It gets red hot. It's smoking hot. Smoking hot poker. <laughs> and, it's, and, so, and if you take it out of the fire, that red hot poker has many of the same attributes that the fire has, okay? So that it glows with light. It radiates heat. If you were to take that poker, because this happened in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very first one, and you touch a curtain with it or something like that, a piece of fabric or something that's flammable, that hot poker will ignite that fabric, right? So that it has many of the same attributes, right? It, that, now, did that iron, that poker stop being a poker? No, it did not. It's still a piece of iron. It's, <clears throat> it's still a poker, but it has the attributes. It has the outer effects of the energies of the fire into which it was placed. And that, brothers and sisters, is the, that's the journey of the Christian life. We are to remain in such close contact with God, like a poker in fire, that we are to be so penetrated by God's energies that we ourselves began to take on the very character of God. We never stop being human creatures. That poker is still a poker. It's still a piece of iron. We never stop being human creatures. There's no new age or pantheistic heresy here. Rather, by being united to Christ and conformed to the image of Christ, we become icons of the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That's why in Antioch they first called us Christians. We're like little Christs. 
Like I said, the implications of this are so shocking that it almost makes the heresy warning go off in my head. So instead of me just saying it in my own words, I want, to hear you, I want you to hear it first of all from the words of scriptures. Listen to what the Bible says. This is Romans chapter 8 verse 29, <clears throat> the book of Romans. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? To be made like Christ. That's God's goal. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God intended us to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, that all that we are in our character, in our relationship with God the Father, would be exactly like that of Jesus Christ. So St. Maximus the Confessor defined this doctrine, theosis, as, listen, total participation in Jesus Christ. Are you following me? Is this really, really strange? This is, this is just the Bible, y'all. And what does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? It says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It goes on to say in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he... When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God is making us like Christ. Christ images God to us. Now, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a beautiful verse. We actually sing this verse in one of Wesley's hymns, basically. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. And we all, listen, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Listen to what God is doing to you, brothers and sisters. This is God's purpose in your life. And if this is not the trajectory of your life, it may call for repentance. If this is not what your life is about right now, you got a lot of catch-up to do. It's not like your 401k where you get a catch-up period at the end. You need to be working on this all the way through. I know about that catch-up period, believe me. I'm counting on that. But listen again to what it says. Beholding the, we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking intently on, on our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we're being transformed. You, ooh, what's happening? The Bible says you are being transformed into the same icon, the same image, so that somehow God's purpose is that when people see you, Jesus is revealed through you. That's what God is calling us to. That's what we are all about. And if that's not happening in my life, brothers and sisters, there is no neutral in the Christian gearbox. You're either going forward or in reverse. Okay, somebody might be parked. <laughs> I ain't moving. This is my pew. You, 
you're, we're either going forward closer to the image of Christ or we are receding from the image of Christ. There is no neutral position. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Can you imagine that? Do you realize how little we are willing to settle for when God has the desire to transform us from one degree of glory to another? And that comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. That's God's project in my life and your life. I had a friend one time, um, and uh, he's still my friend. And I, I, said, I said, he told me, you know, I asked him, I said, well, what do you, you know, John, what do you think the goal of the Christian life is? Oh, it is to make disciples who make disciples. And then, and then what? Well, you make disciples who make disciples. Now, that's, that's a mission. But brothers and sisters, that's not a goal. The goal is to be so caught up into the very life of God that we are so penetrated, we're like that poker pulsating with the energies of God. All that He is by nature, we become by grace. Now, early on in this sermon series, we showed you, showed you from the Holy Scripture that Jesus Christ is the archetype of what it means to be a true human being. So if you want to see what it means to be truly human, you have to look where? To Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect union of God and man. Now, most of us, listen, in the Christian West, most of us in this room this morning have focused on the fact that God the Son became a human being in Jesus Christ for what reason? So he could pay my sin debt, right? We, we sang about it this morning. That, goes, uh, that gets really articulated by a dude named St. Anselm of Canterbury. He's an Anglican. He, he just thought he didn't know that word yet. But, uh, but St. Anselm gives us that model. Listen, this is what we believe. We believe that, that human beings broke God's command through sinful rebellion, and justice demands that if you broke it, a human being has to pay the price for that sin. Okay? That's true. But because our offense was, ag was against an infinitely holy God, the, then, the only, then only an infinitely good human could pay the penalty for sin, which means, to use technical terms, we are in a scrape. But since all humans are marred by Adam's sin, there is no such thing as an infinitely good, pure human being. Thus, we all remained under God's judgment, right? But in an amazing act of love, the infinitely pure and holy Son of God took on human flesh in Jesus Christ and through his sacrificial death, he atoned, he paid the penalty for sin. And I still think that this is indeed a part of what is going on in God's uh, wonderful, the, the doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus putting on human flesh. But listen to me, please listen. This is not all that was happening when God became a man in Bethlehem. That is not all that was happening when God became man in Bethlehem. The early church read the scriptures we have already looked at this morning and saw more than just a past sin debt being paid. They saw these scriptures as God's ultimate purpose for human beings. So writing around the year 160 AD, St. Irenaeus in his work Against Heresies wrote, The Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did through His transcendent love become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. 
just need, I mean, it's like the coffee filter in my brain needs to hold that and drip through into my soul. Athanasius, early bishop of the church, around the year 350, writes, the word was made flesh and order, this is, this is going to blow your minds. We, we, we said it, we prayed it in the psalm, Psalm 82, and yet it's going to shock you. He wrote, the word was made flesh in order that we might be made gods. Just as the Lord putting on the body became a man, so also we men are both, are both deified through his flesh and henceforth inherit everlasting life. And then if we weren't listening, he says it again in his work on the incarnation, Jesus, God, God became man that men might be made gods. And that's shocking. And Jesus is still the God-man to this day. He is still God incarnate in human flesh. The divine nature and the human nature are still united in Christ. He is a prefiguring of what God has in store for you and me. So God, who is by in His nature, takes on our humanity, but we in our humanity through grace will take on His divinity. Folks, this is shocking. Think about it. Jesus did not shed his body. Jesus did not relinquish his humanity when he ascended to the Father. Jesus remains truly human today. The incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity will continue forever. Jesus has ascended to the Father in our humanity so that we can experience being made like him through grace. God's ultimate purpose is to bring his human creatures into the life of the Holy Trinity. St. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 3. Do you believe your Bible? Are y'all believe it? Do you believe the Word of God or do when you get passages like this, do you just go la, 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 till you get something that pleases you more? That never happens to me. Now, that's called the flesh, and I've got a heap and helping of it. Paul says, and somebody said amen, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord, for, for smiting me with humility this morning. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, he says that we are to praise that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, does it mean what it, what it says? Yes, it does. So that we may attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you remember that account in um, the three synoptic gospels? It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The account of the transfiguration. I'll just read you Matthew's version. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his faith shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. If you and I are genuinely united to Christ, if we are to be like him, then that vision of Christ transfigured is your destiny. That is my destiny. And that is, that is so much better than, you know, old Joe... He's died, and now he's up there playing golf forever. Oh. 
Peter, if you want to bring up that first slide there, listen to this, this, uh, this quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. To restore humanity, who has been laid low by sin, to the heights of divine glory, the word of the Eternal Father, though containing all things within his immensity, willed to become small. How small? Like that, like that little, little bitty embryo small. This he did not by putting aside his greatness, but by taking to himself our littleness. The humanity of Christ is the way by which we come to the divinity. And then St. Gregory Nazianzen in his fourth theological oration, we'll pull that one up too. He said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For he still pleads even now as man for my salvation. Think about that. For he continues to wear the body which he assumed until he make me God by the power of his incarnation. Not God, who God in his own essence is, but by his energies I take on the character and the attributes of God. That's God's purposes for us. And if you need a more recent voice to verify this, St. C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, in Mere Christianity, I don't know if you skimmed over this part either, but this is what he said. God said in the Bible that we were gods. That's Psalm 82, and again, Jesus takes up that same verse in uh, the book of John. And he is going to make good his words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to him perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. I want you to think about this. No matter how, Christian believer, no matter how broken you feel this morning, no matter how many times you never can seem to get it right, no matter how many times that you feel that besetting sin besetting you again, God is at work to make this your destiny. There is no greater news that I could tell you this morning than this. Now we're on a journey that will bring us into the very dance and love and joy and self-giving that is the inner life of God. We can't imagine the ecstasy that awaits us then, but we get little glimpses of it here and there in places like worship on Sunday morning. It happens even here. i got to tell you, about two weeks ago, um, uh, Annalise and my granddaughter and uh, Benny and, and Tom were back in the nursery wreaking havoc, but Annalise, the five-year-old, was in the pew with us, and, uh, and Bob was sitting there with us. I think Ann was either in the nursery or upstairs in children's ministry, and, uh, but Rebecca was sitting next to me, and Jacob was sitting next to me and Bob, and Lisa was sitting there with me, and I had... I had three generations and my extended family. Some of y'all get to have this frequently. That never happens to me. 
sitting there on the same pew, and I could not contain the joy. I couldn't contain the fulfillment. I mean, I was weeping. Chris was preaching. It wasn't that great. But... <laughs> That, that whole humility thing just keeps coming around. <laughs> Actually, no, it was amazing. It was a great sermon. But it was, it was the whole thing all together. Being with God's people, being with my kinfolks who love Jesus, being with my kinfolks in Jesus who love Jesus, sitting here as a congregant and not as a leader of worship, praising God, it was Folks, it's kind of, it's, it was like, if it gets much better than this, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. We get little glimpses of what's in store for us. Sometimes it, it can happen in those godly relationships in our lives. Sometimes it can even happen as we're just out in the open, like some of these beautiful days we've had and enjoying God's beauty and creation. Theosis is a lifetime process in which we cooperate with God's work through obedience and the means of grace. Now, in my background, in how I was raised, we call that the sanctification process. It's the same thing. And we do it in many ways. First of all, it is by the Lord who is the Spirit. He's the one that does that. But learning to listen to the Holy Spirit as He warns us not to sin and He prompts us to serve God and neighbor, that inner sense of warning and prompting, listening to the Spirit, that's a means of grace. Learning to read the Bible and obediently apply it in our lives, that's a means of grace. When we do that, God is working theosis in us. Learning to pray. Feasting on Christian fellowship is one of the means of grace. Just being with other believers and soaking in the life of Christ that flows between us, that's a means of grace. And coming over and over and over again to be fed from the very life of God graciously poured out to us in wine and bread, that is a means of grace. These all aid us in the process of being made by grace what our Lord Jesus Christ is by nature. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite